Our reading is taken from Romans 12, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given, <clears throat> given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed, to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. <clears throat> if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encourage encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted with one an to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patience in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, please speak to each of us now that we may hear you and that our minds may be transformed by you and our lives transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think I can do any better than that glass of milk, really. The nature of the chocolate into the milk, the milk changing. Everybody seeing and giving glory to the chocolatier. This is supposed to be the Bible, sorry, beg your pardon, the disciple formed by the Spirit, transformed to be like Jesus. And the verse that I think will appear in a minute, yes, it has, 
is rather challenging. But what's a disciple? Maybe we've lost a little bit of the understanding of the word disciple in relation to his rabbi. If you think of Jesus and the original disciples, 12-year tutorial from Jesus, and then post-grad, the Holy Spirit for the rest of their lives. But the book we're considering, Lucy Pepiot's Disciple, suggests that a disciple is a bit like an apprentice, not sugar on the telly where they compete with each other to be the best. Paul's very clear about that in Romans 12. But the old medieval apprentice, someone who is apprenticed to a master for many years to learn the master's craft, his skill, the flavor of the master, the handiwork of the master. He lives with the master, he observes, he listens, he sees, and he acts. And eventually, if the master's a silversmith, he produces his masterpiece and has ceased to be an apprentice, becomes a jack, and then he becomes a master. A couple of weeks ago, we, we had uh, on the Tuesday night press stations, we had um, the church seen as a social club, a hospital, um, a lifeboat, a training camp, and a warship. Well, we're in a warship, and this is in-service training. On active service. What for? Well, Paul says in Romans 15, he says he's writing, and it's two Christians. I'm writing boldly because of the grace of God has given him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. A priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. That's the task. So that others might become an offering acceptable to God. We have that in, in Romans 12 as well. Sanctified, made holy, set apart by the Holy Spirit. Set apart what for? Set apart for service. And that is a role of the Holy Spirit. It's not everything the Holy Spirit does. And perhaps what we think about today is not going to be everything that the Holy Spirit does in the way of sanctification. But Paul's got a particular point to make in Romans 12. Uh, one of the Holy Spirit's role is to bring us into a confession of faith in the first place. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this is not the whole of the sanctification process. But here we are, this rather frightening verse, um, which comes at the beginning of Lucy Pepiot's chapter, so there's no ducking it. The first part is rather exciting. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, that, that is wonderful. I've held on to that for years when I was having a lot of difficulty trying to understand what people were telling me about the Holy Spirit and trying to do what I thought I ought to do, which wasn't necessarily right. But I held on to this half of that verse for a long time struggling with that teaching. But the second half of it is a bit more scary. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed. Oh, 
Not like that. It's not, unfortunately, like the chocolate going straight in and doing it straight away. It's our being transformed. Our being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Unveiled faces is difficult, but if you look at the verses just before it, it suggests that what Paul has in mind is the old covenant. And he says two things that are very helpful. He says, uh, a veil covers their hearts when uh, the law, the old covenant, is read. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So we're looking into the whole of God's word. And the veil is taken away. So that, that's not so difficult. But the difficult bit, I think, is this reflecting of God's glory. But this comes from God, doesn't it? Because we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But it's difficult to believe that we're really more like Jesus. And so I'm going to tell you a joke. This is dangerous because it's possibly the worst joke in the world. Here goes. Once upon a time, there was a family of three balloons. Daddy balloon, mummy balloon, and baby balloon. And they were all tucked up in bed, but baby balloon had a nightmare. So he wanted to go along to mum, dad, balloon's uh, bedroom and climb into their bed for a, a bit of a cuddle. So he trotted along. Don't know how he managed it, but he did. He trotted along. Um, but he couldn't get into the bed. There wasn't room because daddy balloon and Mummy balloon were so inflated, they were so puffed up, there was no room. So he let a little bit of air out of Daddy balloon, and then he tried to get it, but he couldn't quite manage it. It was all still not enough room. And then he let a little bit of air out of Mummy balloon, same, same thing, couldn't quite. And then he let a little bit of air out of himself. And then he got in, and that was great, and he felt, really, this was so much better, and he wasn't frightened anymore. But he'd woken up Daddy balloon, and Daddy balloon was very full of himself, and he said, son, You've let your father down. <laughs> you've let your mother down. And worst of all, you've let yourself down. And usually, this goes on then to the prodigal son. But today, <laughs> today we're a, bit like, we're a bit like that balloon, I think. We do sometimes have the little, little bit out of ourselves if we're going to receive anything, make room to receive anything from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Daddy Balloon had to let a bit out before he really understood what was going on at all and his son was in trouble and likewise Mummy Balloon didn't have a clue what to do because she hadn't noticed. You could sit it another way really, a child going to a, a Christmas tree. My children on Christmas morning would generally have their hands full of chocolate reindeer droppings and in order to receive a gift for them with their name on it from the Christmas tree, they would have to put something down because it's easier to receive with open hands. Two Corinthians three starts with this idea of freedom, and so does Lucy Pepit in her book, and she suggests that freedom is impossible. Absolute freedom, be totally free to do what you want, when you want, to whom you want, where you want, how you want, is impossible without impacting somebody else's freedom. Choosing to take revenge 
perhaps, rather than to forgive, will affect somebody else's freedom. And so we need God's mind. Well, we need God to renew our minds because otherwise that freedom is going to be selfish and it's going to spoil other people's lives. Uh, last week, my son James was in Barcelona with his children and uh, a chap came up behind him and hit him over the head very hard with a frying pan, knocked him down to the ground. And that man was subsequently described as having been heard to say beforehand that he was going to kill James. Now, he'd not played rugby against my son, so there's no particular reason that he would have had to kill him. But the point is that that chap's mind might have been on his freedom. But that act in knocking him to the ground with a frying pan certainly impinged on James, his children, his wife, his mother, his father. He's all right, happily. But absolute freedom is terribly dangerous because we don't use it right. So what we need is to have our minds transformed. That man needed his mind to be transformed so that he wasn't going to kill a stranger. And we need to have ours transformed. Is this new? No. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, changed from one degree of glory to another. And Jesus says it's pretty much the same, I think, in John 20. After the resurrection, he appears to his disciples and says, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Oh dear, there's a task involved, that's a pity. But then he goes on. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, breath of God. We thought about this last week with 2 Timothy, didn't we? All scripture is inspired. God breathed. And what happened at Pentecost? A rushing mighty wind settled on each one. They were all filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit enabled them. Peter raised his voice. You can't really do that without taking in some air. So, with the breath of God, perhaps, and in priestly duty, proclaims the gospel of God. Prophecy, speaking about Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to the people who were there, fulfilling John 14 and John 16, when Jesus says, this is what the Holy Spirit will do. And he interpreted the fulfilled promise of God because he identified what happened as God fulfilling the prophet through the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now there's two things. There's the gift of the Holy Spirit himself and then there are gifts of the spirit. The gift singular. The people to whom Paul is writing, already have the Holy Spirit. We're clear that they're Christians. And in Romans 5, he says, And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So when Paul writes in Romans 12, he's writing to people who have already received the Holy Spirit himself in fulfillment of Jesus' promises in John 14. 
So Joel goes on, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Peter is doing it there and then. A, spe a specific spiritual gift for that particular purpose from the Holy Spirit. Your young men will see visions. Paul, Ananias saw visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Joseph, the Magi. Don't know that the Magi were old. Sorry. Even on my servants, ministers, gifts for ministry, even on my servants, both men and women, and they will prophesy. Simeon, Anna. Transformed by the Holy Spirit. Peter and the others were frightened. They were in it. A, a locked room behind closed doors, frightened. And then, after the Spirit, speaking in public to the very men, the Sanhedrin, who had handed Jesus over to be crucified just a few days before. This is transformation, isn't it? This is really transformation. Is it automatic? Does it just happen? Wouldn't that be nice? No, I don't think it is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. It's not, this is not power and control against our will. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. And he warns us against grieving the spirit or even quenching the spirit. And he wouldn't bother to do that if it wasn't something which we could possibly do. So how is this to happen? And now we're in Romans 12. And it starts, as Sue read, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true worship or your spiritual worship. Offer. Would you like a biscuit? Or, here am I, send me. Which is offering in this sense? It's devoting yourself. This is the devote word. He uses it again in, in verse 9. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's the giving yourself over. It's not, would you like a biscuit, is it? It's, this is me. Here am I, send me. That's what Isaiah said. Is it a single act, just once? Would it be first time, first time? Obviously, won't it? But... It seems to be ongoing because he talks of living sacrifices and you, you can't, if, it's a, if you sacrifice an animal, you kill it and you can't offer it again, can you? You killed it, you can't offer it again, it can't be done. But this is living sacrifices, we're supposed to be doing it all the time, going on offering ourselves, what? Our bodies. Our bodies include our mind because we're talking about renewing the mind. And I suppose it means all of us, really. It's the devote word, give over to God. The, the word in, in Joshua. When, uh, in Joshua 3, when they're about to go into the land, Joshua commands the people to consecrate themselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. Give yourself whoops, over to God. And they did. And they did two things. Um, for those who hadn't been circumcised while they'd been in the wilderness, they were circumcised. Now, you can only do that once, can't you? But the other thing was, they celebrated the Passover. 
And they were supposed to celebrate the Passover every year. So there's a first time for one, as it were, sense of consecration, but there's an ongoing time and time again sense of consecration. So the Lord will do amazing things among you. And the next morning, when they step into the river, the river dries up. Amazing. But the next bit that worried me thinking about it was that this sacrifice of my body, my mind, is supposed to be holy and pleasing to God. And I know that's not how my mind is at the moment. You may say, yes, why? that's why it needs to be renewed. But actually, what makes something holy is God. It's the Holy Spirit in Romans 15, 16, who sanctifies. And Jesus says the same thing, and he refers to Exodus. So you have it in the Old Testament, you have it in the Gospels from Jesus' own mouth, and you have it in, in Romans, that God does the making holy, because uh, in Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to uh, the priests, and there's some confusion as to what makes something holy, whether it's um, the thing which makes the, the, the temple holy or whether it's the temple that makes the gold in the temple holy. And Jesus says, it's the temple. In other words, it's God, it's me. That's where I live now in the Old Testament. The temple was the place where you'd expect God to meet with his people. But God meets us in Jesus. Now, we don't need to go back to the temple. It's God who makes us holy. So we do the giving and he goes the making holy. But an offer... An offer is an act of will, isn't it? If you offer yourself to God, that's an act of your will, of your mind. And he goes on to say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to approve what God's will is, the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And then you can decide whether to follow it or not. That's how our, our mind is, is renewed. Not anymore by eating fruit in Genesis 3, but by having our mind renewed by the act of the Holy Spirit. And Paul gives an example of how that might happen. An example by talking about some of the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings. We've talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit himself already and he's writing to people who are already Christians, chapter 1 verse 7 and he's talking about people who've already been given the Holy Spirit, chapter 5 verse 5 so these are uh, chapter 5, 5, I'll read it to you God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us and he talks about gifts here and he talks about gifts in 1 Corinthians. In, in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about them in 12 and 14, he puts the chapter on love in the middle. And when Jesus talks about them in John 14 and 15, he talks about abiding in him and in his love in the middle. And here, Paul puts the instruction, the example, and then he talks about love. Love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So this is not just a matter of making me feel better. What did the disciples do after the Holy Spirit 
arrived at Pentecost, as it were, and filled them. They devoted themselves. Last week, we thought about being formed by the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and then to the breaking of bread, which will happen here in a few minutes, quite a few minutes maybe, <laughs> and to prayer. But he gives a warning. Paul gives a warning. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God's given you. And he goes on afterwards, he says, honor one another above yourselves. And he says this by the grace that he's been given. So, we mustn't think about ourselves more highly. This is, these gifts are not to make us puffed up. And we're to think of ourselves according to the measure of faith that we have. The Holy Spirit is not mindless. He's not going to expect us to be mindless. Come, let us reason together, said God to Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he replied to the complaints that Job and Jonah and Habakkuk had raised to him. He replied so that they could use their minds. And then Paul talks about different members of the body having different functions and belonging to each other. And so there are different gifts. And what are they for, these gifts? I, I spent a long time, years, asking God for a particular gift. I didn't get it. But I wanted that gift so that I would feel that I wasn't being left out. How stupid is that? In the event, when I asked for whatever gift he wanted to give me, I got a different gift to use on behalf of the body. So what are they for? They're to use, not for the individual, but for the body. If it's prophecy, verse 6, prophesy, use it. If it's teaching, verse 7, teach. If it's encouraging, verse 8, encourage. If it's contributing to needs, give. If it's leadership, Govern diligently. Actually, I misread it. I thought it was gently, but it's diligently. If it's money, give it. If it's giving mercy, do it cheerfully. Use the gift. But I was asking for the wrong one, for the wrong reason, and I didn't get it. And Pepiot, very kindly in my case, points out what James has to say about this. Don't just listen. Do it. He also says, you don't receive because you don't ask, or because you ask with the wrong motives, as I did. He also says, those for whom to know good don't do it. Those who know to do good and don't do it, the same to them is sin, which is a big word. But we do need to distinguish gifts of which he mentions just a few here, not all of them, from fruit. Fruit, I hope this is right, Daniel, singular word in Greek, fruit, singular word in Greek. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All those appearances, as it were, but they're all one fruit. Does that mean we're expected to demonstrate all of those things? Perhaps it does. 
But Jesus, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit in the middle, in, verse, in chapter 15 of John, he talks about uh, fruit, talks about the vine. He says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does a vine do? What does Jesus do? A vine changes soil and CO2 in the air and sunshine by photosynthesis and water, rain, snow, whatever it might be, into fruit. It's a transformation. It's an astonishing transformation. Dirt, sunshine, air, water, and you've got a grape, or a stocking grape bunch of grapes, with a seed in it. That is a miraculous transformation, and that's what, that's what the Spirit does in us. God can change human talents as well. Those things he's already given us, as it were, in the body, rather than things that are given in a spiritual sense. So, that's a vine. It grows slowly, come rain, come shine. But gifts are more like a Christmas tree, aren't they? There's my child again, putting down the chocolate and wanting to take the gift, which has already got his name on it. But you have to breathe out a bit, I think. We have to put down a few things so our hands are open and ready to receive a gift. Go on asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5. Eagerly desire the greater gifts. I don't know which the greater ones are. Be on the safe side. Ask for whatever gift God wants to give you. That's 1 Corinthians 12. And in the context of the body, what are we? We might like to be an ear so we can hear and the mouth so we can say, I think maybe I'm a bit of stomach lining through which something beneficial to the body can pass for the benefit of the rest of the body. Something goes through the stomach, a chop goes through the stomach into the blood and round it goes. But in order for that to happen, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's not cosmic shopping, you see. It's whatever, God, uh, whatever gift God wishes to give us. And we have to let out some air to take it in. And what are they for? In the next part of 2 Corinthians 13 in chapter 4, sorry, 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, it says that these gifts are for ministry for use by God. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Perhaps we can pray for God's glory to increase in our lives by the renewing of our minds, by the inspiration of His Spirit, by those gifts by that fruit which he wishes to work in us. Amen? Amen.